Hey, John, have you seen Will? He was supposed to be here hours ago to watch the WandaVision finale with us. Mm, Will's been in the Cinemaholics research and development room for hours. I can't wait to see what he's cooking up. Will, are you in there? Your buttered noodles are getting cold. And don't you want to find out just how non-David Lynchian the latest Marvel thing is? Just one second, and it's done. All right, get in here, gang. Will, what in Roger Ebert's holy name are you up to this time? Don't tell me you're trying to discover the true meaning behind the THX sound effect again. Nope. I finished that ages ago. See? Oh, now it makes complete sense. And so will this. John, Abby, I've done it. I've created the most stunning innovation known to entertainment. No one will see it coming. I've created our very own streaming service. Streaming, streaming service? That's right. A Cinemaholics streaming service. I call it Cinemaholics Plus. But Will, we're a podcast about movies and shows you can stream. Why would we have a streaming service? What would even be on it? Now, hold on, Abby. I think you're being just a little too hasty. Let's hear out Will's bad idea. Thanks, John. My bad idea goes like this. We remake our favorite movies and shows ourselves using our own voices and production quality. We'll call them Sweeted Films. Why Sweeted? Because I got the idea from some guy in Sweden. And our first film to Swede will, of course, be, let's see, uh, Be Kind Rewind. Huh. Never heard of it. Wow. Well, you've really outdone yourself this time. This has to be one of your worst ideas yet. Wait, wait. There are paid tiers, right? John, you insult me with such a question that assumes I wouldn't consider such a corporate tactic. For just an additional $4.99 per month, you can upgrade to Cinemaholics Plus Ultra. Plus Ultra? But that doesn't even make sense to people who've never seen My Hero Academia. Whoa, slow down, Abby. You're scaring me again. The whole point of Plus Ultra is that they're paying us an ultra amount of money in addition to what they were paying before. It's foolproof. Well, I guess we could do your bad idea. But only on one condition. Yeah, Abby and I get a $2 discount. <sighs> no. In the end, we gather the local community around our Cinemaholic streaming service, reflect on the changing landscape of technology, and remember that at the end of the day, we're here to celebrate our love of movies. Together. <sighs> For a small monthly fee. Welcome once again to Cinemaholics from the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm John Negroni, film critic for Words Watch, Young Folks Spool, and as of this week, another new outlet. I just, I keep, I keep pitching and they keep sending them back. Uh, this week, I wrote my first thing for culture vultures. So there, there's that. Yay. Attaboy. Yay! <laughs> you did it. <laughs> uh, from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he is a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend and he also writes for Cinemaholics.com. It's Will Ashton. Hello, John. And from Kansas City, Missouri. She's a freelance writer and film editor for The Pitch Magazine with bylines at rogerebert.com slash film, Crooked Marquee, and Every Heart in America. It's Abby Chessie. Hello. You can find more episodes of our show, including our full archive on cinemaholics.com. It's also where you'll find written reviews, bonus content, and our Cinemaholics merch. You can write into the show anytime by sending us an email. Cinemaholicspodcast at gmail.com is how you do that. 
And if you'd like to support our show, help us keep the fun going, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash cinemaholics. We hope you can become a patron. We love our patrons. And thank you as always for the monthly donations. So this week we have several reviews we're going to be getting into big ones for sure we have riot and the last dragon the latest disney animated film we also have coming to america the sequel not the original and a couple of other films netflix films called moxie and an indie film called sophie jones all that's coming your way soon but first we have some off topics real quick we have a few bonus episodes that just came out and a couple on the horizon so if you want to know what we thought of Chaos Walking and Boogie, those two reviews have already come out. We did Chaos Walking on Thursday, and then we did Boogie with special guest Corey Woodruff on Friday. So those are already in the feed. Definitely check them out. I think those were pretty good conversations. Will, you were part of both of them. What, what did you think of, uh, um, you know, for the listeners who haven't listened yet, what did you think of like all the releases coming out this week? Was it pretty overwhelming for you? Um, Yeah, I mean, overwhelming in a sense that I was weirdly very negative on quite a few of them and I, I feel bad because there are a lot of things that were interesting to me that that didn't really meet my expectations or weren't quite as good as I was hoping but you know maybe next week will be a little bit better that's the game that's the game and with that we only have one more off topic before we get into Ryan the Last Dragon and that's that's we have an announcement to make very very sad news but this will be the last week that Abby Chessie is going to be one of our official co-hosts so sad we're saying farewell but abby what's going on um i think uh will wrote down why are you abandoning us <laughs> i'm sorry i just i've been taking on a lot of additional freelance things and uh i started a new full-time job also recently and between those two things i've just been having less and less time recently so i am kind of stepping away for uh We'll say the sake of my own sanity, <laughs> as well as exactly. uh, as well as a few other upcoming projects that I would like to dedicate a little more time to. Absolutely, we we absolutely support this. Of course, we hope that you're able to get all the time you need, and you know, sad to see you go, but very glad that you have all these awesome opportunities ahead of you. And we're of course going to beg you to come back to this show as many times as you'll allow, <laughs> because uh, you know it, it's been awesome having you on Cinemaholics since last year it's been super fun and you know will will i think we have like a special a special thing for abby i believe so yeah yeah, oh, no. yeah. oh oh here it is okay um i i don't know what this is I, this is just kind of someone sent it to us must be a, a secret admirer of abby lachesi let's let's find out what this is i will remember you i'm abigail america will you remember we're also contractually obligated to also talk about basketball. Don't let your love pass you by. Come on, Wilston, we have another case to solve. Well, you're scaring me again. Dear Abby, that's me. Peer pressure, Polly. What on Google Earth are you doing here? I came here to make sure you don't send in that ballot, Mr. Millennial. Okay, now I'm really mad. Will you remember me? 
Okay. Have fun, loser. Maybe none of this would have ever happened if the two of you had paused to appreciate the privileges and responsibilities you already have in your own special bodies. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I promised myself I wouldn't cry. Oh my god. I knew, I knew, I knew Sarah McLaughlin was gonna come up. I knew it somehow. I mean, you you've gotten to know us pretty well, Abby. So I guess. <laughs> It was inevitable. It's true. I, I always appreciate a good McLaughlin drop. So thank you for that. That was very <laughs> sweet. It's been awesome to be part of the show. And I am also sorry that I have to, yeah, take a take a break. But you definitely have not heard the last of me. So I will be happy to come on again in the future when things settle back down some. All right. Well, on that teary note, let's get into our first big review. This is a film that has been a long time coming for sure. Let's talk about Raya and the Last Dragon. Six years of searching. Please let this be it. Whoa! Focus. Eyes forward, Tuk Tuk. Good boy. Okay, so here's the sitch. This is Kumandra. Each land is named after a part of the dragon. Fang, heart, spine, Tail and talon. We were once unified harmoniously as one until evil forces were awakened, shattering the peace and dividing the five lands. Raya, this isn't the world I want you to live in. To restore peace, I must find the last dragon. Raya and the Last Dragon is the latest original film from Walt Disney Animation. This is actually the first animated film we've seen from them based on an original idea since Moana, which, man, that was a while back. I mean, that's late 2016. So it's been over four years since that. We, since then, we've gotten, you know, like Frozen 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet and all that. We were supposed to get Gigantic, which was going to be Disney's original feature after Moana, but that never came to pass. I don't think they'll ever come out with that film at this point. Uh, regardless, this is the one we're getting. It was delayed due to the pandemic, but we're finally getting now here in the spring of 2021. It is a an action adventure film, which is a little different for Disney. They've been kind of like moving more toward this like action adventure thing. Frozen 2 kind of dabbled in it a little bit. But of course, that movie and Moana had like music and everything. Ryan the Last Dragon is not a musical. It ha actually has a little bit more in common with some of the more... Uh, it's not sci-fi, but more of like the adventure aspects of something like Treasure Planet and uh, uh, what was the the other one? Um, Atlantis, like that kind of thing where it's a little bit more serious or it's, it's you know, it's, it's the kind of film where instead of having like the Disney characters going on a very light adventure, there's there's slightly higher stakes, that kind of thing. Uh, regardless, this is based around Southeast and uh, Southeast Asian cultures it's very much kind of like so I, in my review i compared it to avatar the last airbender which kind of took eastern asian re the those regions right so like china japan stuff like that and sort of repackaged it into like a mythological world this is kind of that but for disney doing that same sort of thing to southeast asian countries so in this movie you kind of see shades of vietnam and laos cambodia stuff like that and it's like a mystical world called Kumandra. 
So to get us into the story, uh, Abby, what, what what's the setup for Raya and the Last Dragon? And uh, yeah, we can go right into what you think of the movie. Sure. So it's a little bit the the uh, mythology that kind of sets it up is a little more complex. Um, there is a yeah magical well I say magical fantasy land called Kumandra. It's a fictional world. Um, that at the beginning of the film, we find out kind of the history of this place. So 500 years ago, it was saved from a shadowy plague that is called the Droon by uh, a bunch of dragons. And one of these dragons named Sisu gave up her magic to create something called the Dragonstone, which is uh, it's sort of a magical stone that contains the bits of magic of all the dragons. Um, and it helps to keep this shadowy Droon plague uh from destroying the world, basically. Um, but since the creation of the Dragonstone, uh, that kind of caused, uh, that, that it, it caused the plague to go away, but it also caused a lot of infighting. So what was once a unified land has now kind of separated into five separate states. And uh, our main character, Raya, lives in a place called Heart, which is where the Dragonstone is kept. And she is being trained by her father, the chief of her community, to uh, to be kind of the next guardian of the Dragonstone. Um, so at the beginning of the film, there's a meeting between all of the five states, we'll call them, I guess, yeah, city-states, um, to kind of get together and discuss their differences and maybe come to some kind of agreement. Um, and during that time, uh, Raya makes a friend named Namari uh, from a different... Uh, state called Fang. And she wants to show Namari the Dragonstone because Namari is just as much of a dragon nerd as Raya is. And that leads to disaster and the Dragonstone is broken and now belongs, pieces of it belong to the different five different groups. And the Droon have returned and they turn a bunch of people into stone. That's kind of their, their weapon. So six years on from that event, uh, Raya is trying to reunite the pieces of the Dragonstone and also trying to find the, uh, kind of mythical sleeping place of Sisu so that she can resurrect the dragon and kind of fix everything that's broken. And she does eventually find Sisu, who is voiced by Aquafina, and she is a much different kind of uh, character than Raya, who's played by Kelly Marie Tran, um, is kind of expecting to find. She's a little more awkward and uh, a little less sure of herself than you might expect for a uh, former savior of the world. Yeah, she's kind of like a combination between, I thought, like the genie from Aladdin, but mixed with Maui from Moana. Kinda. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good comparison. There's yeah, there's a, a mixture of, um, yeah, like ability and knowledge of that ability and like kind of deep seated insecurity <laughs> that uh, right. I think actually works really well for uh, for Aquafina's performance. I feel like that's really calibrated well to her. Um, on the whole, I really like Raya and the Last Dragon. Like, there's a lot of lore that is set up. The uh, the different areas of Kamandra, um, like Heart and Fang and uh, Talon and Tail and Spine, are all like really distinct geographical locations that seem to have like cultures that are specific to those locations. It feels like there's a lot of detail that went into the planning and. Uh, and, and decision-making behind this. Um, and I also appreciate that it is about mainly female characters who are not necessarily meant to have like some kind of a romantic interest. This isn't like a typical Disney princess movie. It's about strong female characters who really are truly strong female characters and not a trope of that, um, who have to learn more kind of 
um, I guess, spiritually gratifying lessons about um, unity and um, kind of rebuilding community and rebuilding trust after that's been broken, which uh, in terms of timeliness, I feel like is just right on the money. Like that's, that's a message that has a lot of resonance particularly right now. So yeah. And on, I, I think it's a really fantastic movie. There's a lot going for it. Yeah. I, re- I really like this movie too. I think it's, it's such a step up from frozen Two and Ralph breaks the internet, you know, they're not terrible movies or anything, but they just don't have the same like creative spirit of like a world and a world full of characters that feels really exciting and different and interesting And that's why I definitely came away from it being like, this is nice. This is like a step in the right direction for this studio. It's definitely not Moana for me. Moana was like an instant favorite film, uh, the kind of film that just like uh, maybe because I saw it in a theater, maybe it was the experience around it. But yeah, that movie just like absolutely nails everything I love the most about Disney animation. But yeah, this is still really a really great effort. But Will Ashton, uh, let let us down. Uh, Sure. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll start with the positives. I, I do agree with everything you two have said so far and that like I think from a world building standpoint or like a lore standpoint, there is a lot to admire here. I do think the animation is very good, a little shadowy, but maybe it's just, just because I saw it at the drive in that it was a little dark at times, like a little hard to see. You were like, what's that shadowy place? Let's <laughs> never go there. I just mean that like I, I don't think I was able to fully appreciate that the animation quality for that reason. But what I was able to see, I think looks, you know, know very well done like they're going for like a like kind of pseudo realist animation style of late that i find interesting i don't know if it's for the better or worse but it's definitely you know showing their stuff and showing the talents of their animators and you know obviously this is some of the the best animators in the world working for this company so it looks fantastic in that regard and i do think the voice acting stands out like i think all the um voice performances from our leads uh, including kelly marie tran to our sporting characters like benedict wong and uh, as you were saying, Aquafina, they all do good work and I think they do good character work as well. But I guess for me, it when I left the film or when I was done watching it, I immediately texted John and was like, is was there a lot of production issues with this film? Like, was, was this a rocky production? And uh, I, I felt that was the case because like if the, the, the story itself was stripped down to, I think, its most essential qualities in a way that felt a little patched together in a way that I find somewhat charming, but also kind of frustrating because it felt like. They just had to kind of like make it work as well as they could to the point where they had a kind of generic like finding all the different MacGuffins and putting them together plot, which, you know, to me felt a little generic and didn't really fully, I think, uh, relish the creativity of the world and the characters. And uh, by that extent, it just it felt underwhelming to me in a way that I haven't really been able to put my finger on. I think it's a fine film in terms of how it's put together. Like, I think they're able to salvage it pretty well. But at the same time, there was something about that just didn't, I'm not able to connect with it as well as you two and many other critics are. And I I take that as a personal failing, but at the same time, I just, I'm still trying to figure out why it is that this one left me cold. Sure. There aren't a lot of critics who like dislike the film a lot, but there's definitely plenty of people who are like, yeah, you know, something about it just didn't quite work for me. I think in my case, what you're talking about there is definitely the case that it's very stripped down. I think that the reason a lot of people like maybe like me and maybe Abby, that it's not as big of an issue is that for me, it comes down to it being more focused for that reason. 
I was kind of worried that I was going to get too complicated over the course of the movie. And I kind of liked that it was just very simple to like, yeah, they're MacGuffins, but they do serve the message of the story, which is trusting others. For me, the only major flaw that keeps us from being one of the all-time great Disney movies is more of how I just think the message of the story is generic. I think the plotting is fine. I think just the message is not that resonant. It sounds like Abby found it more resonant, but I just thought that it was like, it's not a bad idea, but I don't know. This movie was missing a, this is what this is about kind of message that Disney has been doing lately. Yeah. It's very like Joe Biden's America kind of message, which, um, you know, it's definitely like Abby said, it's very timely right now. And I don't think it's, it's a bad nice message. It's nice for the kids. But yeah. I mean, you know, obviously it has to become on somewhat simple for like a family audience, but at the same time, you know, I, I do agree. I, I feel like there's a little bit more complexity that was, uh, sanded down or, or unnuanced here that I think could have been explored a little bit more. But at the same time, I think I was able to resonate with the movie more when it was actually diving into that message. Like, I think the climax here is pretty good, even though it does remind me a bit of Pokemon, the first movie, but um, <laughs> very much otherwise. So. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I mean, there is definitely good stuff in here for sure. All right, Abby, take him down. Go after it. All right. Um, no, I, I, I think agree with John in that uh, the, the fact that it's more stripped down, I think, makes it does make it feel more focused and also the fact that i mean it's it's a kids movie so i mean for in terms of being able to maintain attention on where we're going and why we're going there i feel like that is extremely helpful um there are a lot of other disney movies that i could point to marvel cough cough um that have some kind of quest or like some kind of goal in mind that gets muddied through all kinds of stuff that ties it into a larger franchise usually. And it can be really difficult to remember why we are doing what we're doing. Um, there were times in the, like the most recent final episode of WandaVision where I felt that. So it's, it's nice to be reminded that we can have a three act structure that actually works like a three act structure sometimes and pays off. I think in terms of the messaging that's, I mean, I, I think Trust and reconciliation are things that I have been thinking about a lot lately. And so it may be that the movie just kind of hit me where I live currently. Um, I feel like that's an, a, an important message for, for young kids as well. And I think it's encouraging to see a film that does that in a way that, that recognizes that sometimes those divisions do actually come from experiences of trauma and pain and that it is possible to overcome those and to be selfless um but that getting there is really hard so i i appreciate that that approach as well um i'm i i am a little biased just because i love this movie so much but um yeah it's it's a it's an easy new favorite for me i think um there's a lot of things that it's doing differently that i really appreciate there are some things that maybe could be a little better i guess but like it it hits all the stuff that i want it to on the head so hard that it's i'm i'm just i'm just grateful that it exists yeah, you know, I'm I'm pretty mixed on how it handles the whole like trust your enemy sort of thing because it sort of posits that the real evils of this world are like the mindless drone and it kind of ignores that, you know, there are just people in the world who are really, really bad and that you shouldn't trust. And I thought that the movie was kind of sloppy when it came to the naivete of Sisu the dragon and how that can be bad. And then the, when you don't trust anybody, then nothing gets done. There is a good message there. I just think that it cited a little too heavily with Sisu and it didn't really recognize the nuance of like sometimes Raya is correct. Sometimes Sisu is correct. And, you know, I think the movie kind of just goes too far in Sisu's direction, I guess. I guess that's why it kind of left me a little uh confused that's that's fair i could see that yeah it's 
it becomes almost a little too childlike in that regard where like the message is important, but there's maybe a little more. Yeah. It's, I think as we've all experienced over the last four years, um, yeah, there's, there's a little more to it than that. And, uh, I don't know, it's at at the very least, I feel like it can facilitate some good conversations between kids and parents, but you also have to have parents who want to do that. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So I, I do have to say I I rewatched this a week after seeing it. So, my experience the second time around was a lot stronger. I think this is one of those movies that does improve on a second watch. I was very happy about it. I was worried that I was going to be kind of bored because I was like, this is such a simple story. I don't know if I'm going to be able to really have fun with it a second time so soon. But I really did. And I think it's because the world itself is so wonderful and has so many fun little details that rewatching it is just kind of like you're further exploring a dungeon that you you know only got like a bare glimpse of in the beginning. And for example, I had noticed that the world was shaped like a dragon, but I didn't really catch some of the other world building details, like how each of the tribes is named after a body part of the dragon that like corresponds with the map that they show. It's like little stuff like that. I was like, that's really cool. That makes this world feel more alive. And there were also like little things involving, I won't say specifically, but in the ending where in the first time I was kind of confused of like, why did that happen? You know, why, why was this a thing? And then if you rewatch it, you kind of pick it, it's more subtle about that stuff. And you can kind of pick up the pieces of, oh, this is why this didn't happen the first time. This is why this is important that this happens this way. Stuff like that really works on a second watch when you have a little bit more like space to just sort of exist in this world without having to follow everything. I think it comes down to like one axiom I've always found really really valuable Uh, i think it was um scott derrickson was talking about this on twitter pretty recently but he was saying that it's much much better for a story to have complex characters in a simple story than simple characters in a complex story and i think that is this movie i think it's a very simple story but the characters themselves actually are really interesting and multi-dimensional not all the characters but the ones that really matter and i think that's why it's probably working for more people than it isn't but well, Ashton, uh, we can get into our final thoughts now. What what else do you want to add? Is there any other positives or negatives, and uh, I, you know, anything you want to add to the convo? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you said a lot of the points I wanted to make in terms of the messaging, and that I think it's good to um, you know have a message that's not overly complex to the point where it confuses people, but at the same time, like I think uh, children in particular are a lot smarter than audiences sometimes give them credit, and I think that. You know, like a message like this, like like you're saying, it is kind of muddled. It, it doesn't really get into the nuances of this in a way that I think it could have. And I think like a movie like Frozen, even though that had trouble production as well, that has a little bit more complexity in its message and it's able to subvert some of the Disney tropes in a way that I found effective. So when I compare the two films like that, like I just don't I just don't think Raya quite compares. But at the same time, you know, there is a lot to value here. I mean, I, I do agree. Like, I think the fact that it is a primarily woman cast, like I think the the, the cast being primarily Asian or Asian Americans. I think that is fantastic, obviously. I mean, in terms of representation and and building on uh, Disney's representation in their movies, I think that there's certainly a lot to value here. That said, I do think they had an opportunity to have a gay romantic love interest between the lead and the villain in a way that I think would have been very interesting, progressive. And I think they, they mostly avoided that for reasons that feel like they, they didn't want to alienate certain audiences, which is disappointing. But um, no, I mean, I think all the ingredients are here and I, I do think there's a lot to like here. But I guess where I disagree is that I, I think there are avenues through which the characters can be complex, but I don't think they fully come out here. I, I Maybe on a rewatch, I'll agree with you because, you, like you said, you've seen it twice and I've only seen it once. But I just I'm not fully seeing the complexity of the characters here in this first watch. I think the the world itself is a lot 
complex. And I, I think there's a lot of thought and effort and time that went into that. But I just think that there's something either with the characters and the story or characters or the story that just don't fully connect with me. And, you know, maybe on rewatch, I'll, I'll come back and be like, I don't agree with anything I'm saying right now. But at the moment, I just don't think it's quite there. But I don't think it's like an absolute miss or an absolute mess or anything like that. I think there's there's a lot of good stuff here. And I can definitely see why audiences are connecting with it. But for me, it still kind of feels lacking compared to, like you said, like Moana and some of their other recent triumphs. So for me, it's a high C plus. Like, I think there's a lot to like here. And I, I, I do think a rewatch will service me well, but I'm still on the outs with this one, unfortunately. All right. Uh, what about you, Abby? Where do you land? Wow, that was a lot lower from Will than I was expecting. Um, I, I'm, I'm an A on this. I, uh, I, I think uh, I, I, I've only gotten to see it once, but I do agree, John, that there's I think it's something that's going to lend itself well to multiple viewings and like in terms of finding new things that because the, the, the world is so detailed. And I think the the animation is so detailed as well like the the textures and um the 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 scenery as well like it all looks so good and i was i was really bummed that i didn't get to see this on a on a big screen really more of anything else than that i've uh that i've seen recently just because the the setting feels so transformative and uh that's that's the stuff that i usually have the the biggest response to in a theater is getting to see something that looks that cool on that big a screen um, like I, I will go to the mat for John Carter just because I enjoyed watching that in the theater so much. So like similar feelings for this too. Um, in addition to the fact that I think it's legitimately a good story with interesting characters. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to watching this a lot, uh, in the future and watching it with friends. Um, I also agree that it could have, we could have had, uh, you know, a little bit of, uh, uh, some kind of romantic tension between, uh, two of the characters that I kind of wish was there that, you know, other TV shows for children seem to have done with little to no problems at all. Um, but I mean, it's still, I think that relationship is still handled well and it's open-ended enough that I'm sure that there will be plenty of fan art on Tumblr for years to come. So um, yeah, all that said, I, I am unabashedly goofily positive on this one. It's an A from me. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm in between, obviously. I, I'm, uh, you know, the first watch, I was just kind of like a regular old B, maybe more of a low B. I, I come away from it being very high B, almost B plus. I think that this thing is like really, really close to just nailing it and being one of those Disney movies that is really going to last the test of time. And I think it will, I, mainly because the rewatch is just, it's much more rewarding than I thought it would be. And we haven't talked about this yet, but I definitely want to ask both of you, do you think, because this is Disney Plus, but it's Premier Access, you have to pay $30 to watch it. And I definitely think if you watch it with family and you typically like Disney animation films, yes, $30 is totally worth it. But if maybe if you're like one person and maybe if you're like kind of hit or miss with these kinds of films, um, I would say another good benchmark is if you really like Avatar The Last Airbender, I think this has a lot of that spirit to it. I can I can really see places where they were looking toward that show, uh, specifically like Tuck Tuck, which we didn't get to talk too much about the armadillo pill bug or armapillow, uh, I like to call him where he's like this really cool design, really cool animal hybrid straight out of the Avatar stuff. Now, I know, Will, you've you never really gotten into Avatar, and I don't know, Abby, if you've ever checked out the show, but uh, real quick, when I want to ask you both, uh, Abby, $30, you think that's uh, worth it? It's a good question. Um, I think, yeah, if you're uh, an Avatar The Last Airbender fan, I would also put She-Ra on there if you've enjoyed that oh, series. Yeah. Um, there are very similar vibes to that. 
Um, I was thinking of Catra a lot. <laughs> yes, same. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's, I would say if you have like a number of kids or like if you are wanting to watch it with family, I'd say it's a no brainer. Definitely watch it together. Uh, if you're by yourself and you feel like you want like a super awesome treat and like really nothing else will do, I think that will work out pretty well too. Um, I'm not sure what the turnaround is for this to be on Disney plus. I know the one from Mulan was pretty fast though. Um, so like if you're, if you're willing to wait, I think it'll still be rewarding to watch it once it's out on Disney plus as well. Um, however, I would also just recommend that from a, uh, uh, from a representation standpoint, the fact that, uh, not a lot of Disney movies have casts this diverse or are in settings that are this um, influenced by non-European cultures. Um, yeah, I, that's that's worth supporting. So if that is a thing that you want to get behind, I would say absolutely give it your money and help it to be a success so that more of these stories can be told. Yeah. So and just to clarify, because um, you kind of touched on it there, Mulan came out September for Premier Access. You can watch it now. So like the turnaround is there, like you don't have to pay $30 to see it anymore. I don't think I could be wrong about that actually though. Cause I, I might've paid for it and it might be showing up that way. <laughs> so I apologize if I miss speaking there, but no, I think, I think that they'll be sure to put it on there eventually. They did with soul, right? Cause soul wasn't premier access. They just put it on Disney plus. So, you know, if you, if you really feel like you should probably wait and you're not as sure, that's probably a better idea. But what, what about you? Will the $30, where, where do you stand? Um, well, to answer your initial question, I believe they added Mulan uh, without a subscription fee onto Disney Plus in December, if I'm not mistaken. So it was around the I same think time. They that did, Soul yeah. Came on. I can't. Um, yeah, I can't remember, and it's bothering me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can't say for certain, but I'm pretty sure that's what I remember hearing. Um, but uh, I think if you have a family, like, especially like a family of four or five, and and you're going to go out and see it anyway, and spend you know upwards of forty or fifty bucks. Um, it, it's certainly, you know, worth the while because you can see it as a family and, and enjoy it from the comfort of your home, especially now when the weather is not terribly consistent uh, in terms of being hot or cold. You know, I, I definitely uh, underestimated uh, how warm it was going to be at the, the drive in. I guess it ended up being a lot colder than I thought. But um, I think, you know, if you're if you're just one person watching this, um, if you want to support it, that, that totally makes sense. I think it's a better film than the recent Mulan. I also think, you know, it, it makes more sense to seek this one out as opposed to Mulan where like they're asking people to pay 30 bucks for a lesser version of a film that's already on their service. So yeah, like, I just, exactly. <laughs> that this made no sense. Um, to me, this is like you said, this is an original uh, animated film from the company and you know, it, it, it's, it's a theater quality film that you can get from home. So it makes sense in that regard. But I think unless you're seeing it at the theaters, you can just wait until it's on Disney plus or it's at a cheaper, like 15 buck price or, yeah. you know, I would say hopefully 10, but yeah, 30 is just, it's a heavy, hill to climb i think that makes sense i think we've given a pretty reasonable range there of uh, recommendation and advice so you know in terms of representation want to end it on kind of that note uh, although real quick i'll say this movie has really epic action scenes and i particularly think raya herself first of all kelly marie tran is incredible her her voice acting in this made me i just i love raya the character i i just think that even though i i didn't always enjoy sort of how blank she was with some of the character interactions the way she's animated the way her voice comes through i'm really glad that they switched to kelly marie tran from cassie Steele. no disrespect to her degrassi fan all the way but just tran absolutely nailed it here i think and i think like 
Raya as a character is so fascinating, mainly because they don't they don't force in a bunch of love interest stuff. They they just make her this really competent, clever character with a sword that is like one of my favorite movie swords now <laughs> it's so epic and amazing and they, they, they really did a great job here and i think it does come down to the representation now the, it's not that the entire cast is represented from southeast asian cultures i think it's more like a few care a few actors are from that region and a bunch of them aren't um a lot of them are like east asian but it, it is a good step forward, I would say. Uh, and just want to finish then on a review from a colleague uh, who wrote a review for Awards Watch. This is from Nguyen Lee. And he wrote that uh, Ryan the Last Dragon is a personal pulse-pounding adventure. And so to finish this out, I just wanted to read this from him. It's a great piece on Awards Watch. Highly recommend. Uh, but here's what he had to say about the film. He said, what does it mean when I find Raya in alignment with my core, with who I am? I don't have to believe it has been made for me. It is. Granted, the thought would disappear when the film reminds me that dragons are mythical beings and life doesn't have a grand and stirring soundtrack from James Newton Howard. It would always return, though. Shots of the greenery, the adorable tuk-tuk would glide over the waterways. The Shemporium of Boone, played by Isaac Wang, would float on, replicate my visits to Cha Mao, Trejan, and Kanto. Sorry, the pronunciations are not great on my part. Here is a plate of longans, and here there is one for mango teens. Everything Rai is doing is for her ba, and giving voice to her actions is actress Tran Lone. With these, Rai and the Last Dragon is not just a wonderful animated film. It is a voyage I can place myself in my heart into the fullest extent. It is a voyage I hope will give way to a fully Vietnamese or Thai or Indonesian feature down the line in both vision and casting. So that was from Nguyen. He, he is of a Vietnamese background and definitely found this film to be a great representation of these cultures and just really cool that it it had that, you know, and it's just not something that typically gets represented in mass media, particularly outside of like the Vietnam War and stuff like that. So yeah, definitely check that out. Uh, we're going to link to that in the show notes, of course. So that is Ryan the Last Dragon. It is available to stream now on Disney Plus with Premiere Access, and it's only 107 minutes long. Let's get into our next film. This is definitely one that I, I'm surprised this came out the same week as Raya because this is a big, big release. Uh, so Coming to America. This is a sequel. So it's not Coming to America, the 1988 film. It is Coming the Number Two America. So that's that's easy to remember. Real uh, Abin can sell a bit trying to pronounce this title <laughs> on, on the airwaves. But yeah, it's Coming the mm -hmm. Number Two America. Yeah, you can't see us quoting, you know, two fingers to show that it's coming to America. So this was directed by Craig Brewer. He did Dolomite Is My Name, also with Eddie Murphy, and that was a Netflix film. This was originally a Paramount film that got sold to Amazon Studios during the pandemic and is now being released digitally, which definitely feels kind of like an interesting move. They paid a lot of money for this. And already the budget was like $60 million. They spent money on this movie. And so for it to not get a theatrical release is kind of interesting. And just going straight to Amazon, I, I kind of wonder what the arithmetic is there. I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not at Paramount. I, I can't say for certain. But I have to imagine it's like, well, Paramount is selling a lot of their movies already. They're trying to yeah. like kind of get themselves out of a hole. And they've been doing that. This with is like great for Paramount, Chicago. for sure. Like yeah. They got the best end of this deal. Oh, for sure. But I mean, um, they they sold Trial of Chicago 7. Like that's, you know, Best Picture Runner. So they sold that to Netflix. They sold a few other films. Uh, they they sold um, the Cloverfield thing to them as well. And I believe they sold something else to Amazon recently. But um, from their standpoint, I think they what sold, they were thinking. They sold Cinemaholics Plus. Sure. <laughs> Sorry to announce that. Yeah. 
But I think from their their perspective, they're looking at like, well, look at Borat 2 or Borat subsequent film, movie film. And like that did really well in the service. Like that was a film that like people weren't really expecting. That's a decades later sequel as well. And they, they put it on the service to great success. Uh, not to quote the movie, but um, uh, cringe. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, it did really well on Amazon and it, it got a wide audience. And I think from their standpoint, because this deal was announced, I think only a month or two afterwards in December. So I think they were just like, well, if they can do really well with Borat 2, they could probably do well at this because we don't know if we can sell this well. Like even if theaters yeah. open up in normal capacity, like there's no guarantee that this is going to do adequate business because you know it's a decades later sequel we don't really know if this appeals to younger audiences this is clearly more of a nostalgia thing and like you said with the budget that we have in this week we can't say for certain this is going to do well so i think that's their line of thinking but i have no idea for certain yeah i mean that all makes sense it's, yeah there's a lot we obviously don't know and we kind of have to guess and pontificate but yeah overall i think that's for paramount it's a super fantastic deal just because they're washing their hands of this and later in the week we'll be talking more about paramount plus and all of that business the streaming service when we talk about spongebob sponge on the run but for now we're talking about this one which is on amazon and the original coming to america we have to say was a huge huge success i did see a few people being like oh yeah coming to america that cult classic and i'm like what planet are you from that movie was one of the biggest films of the 80s it made like i think the i think over 100 million dollars 200 million i believe worldwide um i think it was the third highest grossing film of 1988 if i'm not yeah yeah, there's some weird sort of like people who were born in the 90s like us um, kind of assuming this film wasn't some sort of big hit. I mean, when I was growing up, coming to America was on TV like constantly. Like my first experience watching this movie was in bits and pieces on like TBS or TNT or whatever it was. So, yeah, this, this definitely makes sense as a sequel. A lot of people know these characters are like the basic outline of this movie, right? Yeah, actually, I just looked it up. It's the second highest grossing film, 1988, after Damn. Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's pretty wild. So this sequel takes place 30 years after the events of Coming to America. Now, that movie was a hard R. It had F-bombs. It had some gratuitous nudity. They've kind of sanitized it this time around. It's more of a PG-13 movie. That's not to say that the first one is a lot edgier. Uh, it's just more of like it has well-placed jokes that are more profane, I guess. I mean, by today's standards or like early, even like 2000 standards, it's not that edgy. But yeah, right. for like a like 80s studio comedy, it does. It has some thorns inside for sure. Sure, sure. Uh, the screenplay comes from Kenya Barris, Barry W. Blaustein and David Sheffield. And a lot of the original cast is returning here, mainly Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. Great to see Arsenio Hall. And again, it's been a long, long time since we've seen him in a film. And uh, we haven't even seen him on like TV or anything. We've just kind of gotten like voice cameos and things like that from him, voice roles. Uh, but also joining the cast, we have some new characters. We have Jermaine Fowler, who plays like the bastard son of Eddie Murphy's character. And they have a whole thing. Uh, we also have Tracy Morgan, who plays his uncle. Leslie Jones, who plays his mother. There's a, now a retconning subplot where it turns out that Prince Akeem fathered a child in Queens. And if you thought the Wonder Woman 1984 sort of stuff was a little bit like, um, yeah. you know, had issues with consent. <laughs> yeah. Um, then, um, <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of again. surprised people aren't people aren't making a bigger deal about that. I was kind of surprised. Like, I mean, they might be and I'm just not seeing it. But I'm kind of like, this is this is uh, quite a choice for 2021. But yeah. Sure. I mean, I guess they, they probably think because it's more of a comedy that it, you know, laughing at it, it's OK. I don't know. I guess with Wonder Woman, it was played a little bit more straight, which is probably more 
discomforting. But regardless, the whole point is consent is really important and we should not make light of that for sure. But this film just kind of uses that as a means to be like, oh, Prince Akeem didn't know he had a son. That's the whole plot purpose there. There's a lot of lampshading in this movie, by the way. Uh, but also some of the best new characters come in the form of Wesley Snipes, who plays this general character who's threatening the existence of Zamunda. There is uh, James Earl Jones, by the way, returns as the father. Sherry Headley is back, which is great. Uh, we also have Kiki Lane as one of Prince Akeem's daughters. And kind of this, this film kind of struggles with two different plots. There's a whole plot of how, so Prince Akeem has three daughters, but he has to have a male heir, he thinks, in order to have like a, a prince uh, on the throne once his father passes away. And his daughter, Mika, played by Kiki Lane, is like, well, I can do it. I've been training for this my whole life. So there's that kind of side of the story of like the gender politics of monarchies in Africa and all of that. And then there's this other subplot of like Jermaine Fowler who goes from Queens and he goes to Zamunda to be like, well, I can be a prince. And he kind of goes on like the... Uh, you know, a Prince Aladdin adventure. Maybe we can bring up Aladdin uh, with every film review uh, this week. I don't know. But yeah, he has this whole thing. And I, I'm going to, I'm just going to say, this is definitely one of those movies that succeeds in spite of itself, but ultimately just is still very, very weak. I think this story is really basic. And I think that it's just kind of an exercise in nostalgia for the sake of it. And I, re I really didn't warm to it much. I rewatched Coming to America earlier this week, and I definitely enjoyed it. You know, it's, it's never been a film that's been my favorite of the 80s comedies. I know people really, really love it. I think it's just kind of a breezy, enjoyable watch. And the McDowell's thing always gets me. I think with that and also John Amos comes back and this is just great. That stuff is gold. But then there's other things here that I think are just very dated. It just really feels like comedy that like people found funny in the 80s and 90s kind of making its way back again and yeah aside from that there's just really not much standing out here but what what do you think will did you uh were you enjoying your revisit to america um well i will say i mean i, I also rewatched the first coming to america as well and I, I agree it doesn't fully uh work in a modern set only in the sense that like not so much the comedy itself but because um the pacing of it is a lot more slack than i remember like yeah, you were saying the it, end it, that the last like 30 minutes is really boring to me. Like, it's just there's not much story there. And it, yeah, in a way that I kind of admire because it's like there's so much like rapid fire comedies right now that I kind of appreciate how much this, that movie is willing to just be like calm and in the moment. But at the same time, it does kind of feel like they're padding it out a lot, which is weird because it's almost two hours. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I still think that movie works. I think primarily what works is Eddie Murphy and his star power. Like he clearly you know, he was coming off of the 80s, like as this comedy legend type persona. And he was, you know, fully relishing it and, you know, playing all these different characters. Same with Arsenio Hall. Like they they clearly made the most of that movie. And it, it's easy to see how that was a huge hit. Now, I think that's the type of movie that I think it's better to have like on like in the background, like if you're like a cabin trip or something and like the boring moments, you can kind of get up and like do whatever and then come back for like the barbershop scene and stuff like that. I think that's the ideal way to watch it. So I think putting this on Amazon inadvertently was probably the better option because yeah. um. I'll just say out front, I think this is a bad film. Like, I think it's almost terrible <laughs> just because, like you said, like it is so pandering. It's so, so much about the nostalgia of the brand that barely ever stands out on its own. But even the stuff that they add into it doesn't ever really fully work because 
it's trying to like kind of replicate the story, but also not. And it just doesn't ever really fully feel comfortable with itself, uh, even down to like the visual aesthetics of it. A lot of people have been talking about how it, you know, it looks worse than the first movie because it's shot on digital. And I think that's part of it. I also think it just has like this kind of like flat sitcom lighting to it as well. And there's just not a lot of like visual styles that come from shooting this primarily on green screens and stuff like that, which is very, very noticeable for the queen scenes. Um, but I, I do agree that like, I think, the stuff that works is when we actually get to see like Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall just having fun and kind of bouncing off each other. And then also we have like, you know, Wesley Snipes clearly having a ball with his supporting character. Tracy Morgan's fun in this. Um, Kiki Lane, I think, probably should have been given more to do because she's clearly, you know, act- out acting most of the people in this movie uh, in terms of her performance. But I just found it to be a really just embarrassing and sad ordeal to sit through. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that this film critics in general have been really turning against it and it's very mixed. Like I think uh, right now on Rotten Tomatoes, it's, it's like 52%. And that's kind of how I'm feeling. I'm, I don't think it's actively terrible. I just think it's very mediocre. Uh, I, w- I want to read a piece from uh, one of our colleagues, Katya Woods, who wrote about the film for cup of soul. And uh, she said the one positive about coming to America is Eddie Murphy. He still gives us moments of laughter despite uh, the above, which she's been she's been kind of getting in the negatives at this point. His talent will shine no matter how dated the situation. The set design and costuming are also festive. Academy Award winner Ruth Carter did bring a little of Wakanda to Zamunda. It was also lovely to see how Zamunda, the country, operated. The last film took place primarily in Queens. The other highlight was seeing Morgan Freeman and James Earl Jones in a movie together. I guarantee that will be a Jeopardy question down the road. I think she's kind of getting to like how this film, it does feel like a party you know, a party of just like it's enjoying itself. These characters are having such a good time. It's almost pretty infectious. So I've spent a lot of my time just sort of enjoying this, you know, the attitude of the people involved. It doesn't look like anybody who's in this doesn't want to be there. And so that does for me at least go a long way because I just felt like I was enjoying being back in this world again. Now, a lot of the stuff in here really just does not age well. There's still a lot of like just little things here and there, like the colorism of Vanessa Bell Conway just doesn't quite, uh, and it doesn't get reckoned with in a way that I think is pretty fair. That's something the original film absolutely suffered from. Um, in addition, I just, I think that the gender politics are of this are really, really weak. I think that everything going on here with the agency of Mika and the, you know, how women in this film are treated, I think is very, uh, it's a very mixed effort at best, but yeah, it's, it's such an unassuming film. I think it can be very easy for people to sort of like, sit down, watch it, kind of just like crank it out on a, a lazy afternoon. It's definitely that kind of film. It's uh, it's more of a take it or leave it kind of film than anything else. So I'm, I'm not super, super negative with it. Yeah, I mean, I think talking with you, I'm more positive than I was when I was watching it. I do think, I mean, to your point, like I think they're trying to be uh, inclusive with the gender politics. I just think the execution of it's kind of clumsy. Like, I don't think it's for a lack of trying. I th- I just think the execution of it is just from like older guys. who I just don't think really know how exactly to communicate this message, which is unfortunate. But I do agree. I think um, as the, your, the reviewer mentioning was pointing out, like, I think this movie is sort of the opposite of the first and that like the end of it is, I think, where it starts to kind of pick up and come alive as opposed to the. Uh, original film where it just kind of like deflates to its end um this one like i think like you said like when it is just like the characters having fun and like that that party at that aesthetic to it i think 
that is when it actually starts to like really kind of have fun in an infectious sort of way and it's not in a forced sort of way now there's still a lot of like awkward um like callbacks to the, the first film that come at the end and that it's really hard to sit through because it's just like here's this reference and remember this shot and you know this one and here's this thing too and and that's annoying but yeah. um at the same time like you said like the the production quality of it, especially coming from a studio comedy, because it's so rare now to see studio comedies put this much money into something, especially when it comes to building a world like uh, like the ones we see here. And I think, you know, Ruth Carter's work obviously is, is quite good. Um, I don't think it's quite on par with Black Panther, but it's still, you know, clearly like the costumes here are an upgrade from the first film, which, you know, especially we watch the film, there is kind of like a cheesiness to it. that That's kind of fun, but definitely an improvement over that. But yeah, I want to call out. On that note, Tiana Taylor, uh, who plays the daughter of General Easy, um, her her whole scene, um, also where Wesley Snipes is involved with Jermaine Fowler, there's this like musical sequence that happens that is a blast, like a total blast. I, I thought that that was one of the parts points where I was like, can this be the movie? <laughs> you know? Yeah, especially because it kind of is lazy otherwise. And it's just like if you're just going to have like a fun get together party, just might as well just relish that. And I think it does at times, but. At the same time, I just I, I just don't think it's really quite there. It just it's just an underwhelming effort by and large. And I mean, I don't know. I'm not the biggest fan of these like decades later sequels to begin with. I was even that crazy about the new Bill and Ted. So I, I, I'm coming at this with a disadvantage. But I do like the first movie and I wanted this movie to succeed primarily because, you know, even though we just had Dolomite is my name, like, you know, Eddie Murphy still hasn't really come back in a big way yet. And uh, I, I was hoping this movie could be that for him. And I just don't think it is. And that's really unfortunate. But it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Maybe maybe his comeback will coincide with uh, the next Shrek movie. Who knows? But yeah, yeah, I, I definitely am kind of feeling pretty middling with this. I, I give it like a C. I think it's like half good, half bad, that kind of thing. And it's definitely not like Borat's subsequent movie film. It's not Bill and Ted. It's, it's not even something like Doctor Sleep, another kind of sequel, I guess. It really is just sort of the kind of thing that I think people will definitely not really remember for a long time and just go back to the original film whenever they want to revisit and have fun with these characters. But again, if you love that film, if you love those characters and you just want to see what's next for them, this is a pretty, this is a no brainer. I mean, just it's on Amazon prime. It's pretty accessible and a lot of people won't be disappointed watching it. I don't think so. Yeah. It's a C for me. What about you? Will? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a C minus on it. it. It reminded me a decent bit of Jay and Silent Bob reboot where it's like kind of trying to reckon with the new age, but just so caught up in its own nostalgia that it just can't really fully be its own thing. And in one respect, like it's obviously just hearkening to the fans and, and I can respect that. But at the same time, as someone who liked the original film, I just found those callbacks to be really tiring and forced in a way that felt like like kind of like a Super Bowl commercial. Like when they bring back the dude or when they brought back uh, Wayne and Garth for that Wayne's World Uber thing, it just was like, yeah. just let them be. Just let them be of their time. You know, it's just like I, I get the, the desire to like bring these characters back. I, I obviously want to see them again, but it's like not like this. Not like this. Um, <laughs> okay. So, yeah, I didn't have fun with this and I found it to be uh, probably the worst thing we talked about this week. So, yeah, a disappointing film for me. All right. Well, if you want to see Coming to America for yourself, it is now available to stream on Amazon Prime Video. It is 110 minutes long, much longer than it should be, I think. All right. Sophie Jones. This is a film that we kind of squeezed in last minute here, mainly because I needed a palate cleanser in this week, you know, between like the SpongeBob movie and coming to America. And I, I don't know, I just, I wanted, I needed like a, a really strong independent film. And I had been hearing really great things about Sophie Jones, which hit the festival circuit. So it's already gotten glowing reviews, like really, really great notices from a lot of critics. 
and it's finally out on VOD and I think in select theaters this week. I, I know you can rent it right now or buy it on Amazon Prime. But yeah, so Sophie Jones is an indie film directed by Jesse Barr, who this is her first film. She's done a bunch of short films. She's a Sundance fellow, a very talented filmmaker, and this is her first time making a feature. And she actually co-wrote the film with her cousin, Jessica Barr, who also stars in the film as Sophie Jones. The setup for this film is that Sophie Jones is a 16-year-old high schooler who has recently gone through a horrible, horrible family tragedy, and she's trying to cope. She's trying to heal uh, in her life, but the, the main problem is she feels like this tragedy has interrupted her coming of age, and she doesn't feel like she deserves to experience the fullness of the next few milestones like her, you know, her virginity or losing her virginity, going to college and just kind of reckoning with these things that she's supposed to be enjoying, but she just doesn't feel anything. So it definitely is a film about grief. It is about trauma. It's also about relationships and it's also about friendship, particularly female friendships and how people can heal through relationships. This is a beautiful movie, just absolutely a slam dunk from Jesse Barr. I I was totally, totally taken aback by how good this was. It's a quick watch for sure. And I think that a lot of people who watch it will come away from it, I hope, really feeling something, ironically, since the whole thing is about how Sophie herself doesn't feel. But she's such an empathetic character. This film, I was writing in my review, which actually isn't out yet, but she's kind of like a, a really interesting blend between the reserved curiosity of Haley Lou Richardson's character in Columbus with um, some, some other characters I won't give away because it would kind of give away kind of where the story goes. So I want to be a little bit more coy about that. Um, but I would also say this is definitely of a piece with something like Eliza Hittman's film from last year, Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always, where it's just a very objective, neutral, but intimate portrayal of a character going through something very, very difficult and something very life affirming at the same time. So I'm a big fan of Sophie Jones. Will, you saw this as well. Pretty like you're fresh off this movie. I think you checked it out just today, right? Yeah, I watched it this morning. Um, as you were saying, kind of a I, I needed something that that actually endeared me. I feel like all the movies I've been watching or talking about this week have been mixed to negative, and I was like, I need to be positive. And I know you and a bunch of people were liking this. Yeah. I think it has like a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes right now. So I was like, you know, I, I think I need to be a little bit more positive. I need to give a movie that 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 is actually uh, higher in my estimation some love. And I, I do agree. I think. This is a very much an indie film in the sense that, like, I think the most famous name is behind it. Like, Nicole Hofenzeffer is a producer on it. And, like, otherwise, there's, like, no big names on this. Um, it's a, certainly a more indie production than, than what we usually cover on the show. And I don't yeah, think it's she, a bad thing. She, just... cast, she cast mostly unknown characters, like, yeah. specifically, which is ironic considering the same thing happens in Boogie, but it doesn't quite work in that film, which right. is interesting. No, I just I just clarify because like, I mean, I know like when we talk about indie films, we kind of put like indie in like quotation marks because they're like usually like, you know, like two or three hundred million dollar or, or sorry, two or three million dollar productions. So it's like they are independent, but not like indie to the extent like this. Like this is like probably like a much smaller scale thing. Like this is the type of thing in a normal theatrical climate. Like you might see like a poster for it, your art house theater and you like get in the town early and your friends out there. yet. So it's like, oh, I got like 90 minutes to kill. I'll just see this movie who is Sophie Jones and you just kind of get washed in with it. And I think in a good way, I think 
this is a type of film that I, I hope it finds its audience along the way. Because like you said, it's a pretty unassuming film. It, it, it hits a lot of like sort of indie cliches that we've seen before. But one thing I really do appreciate about the film is that it doesn't really give us those big moments that you expect. It's all like the little moments in life. Like like they hint at, like you said, like this like terrible tragedy or like she has this big play coming up or her high school graduation is coming up or like all these different things. And we just don't really see that part of her life we just focus on the little day-to-day things that um you know make her this character that comes to terms with her grief and how she kind of processes this very difficult thing that happened at a very formative age in her life and you know i think you know it doesn't do anything that you haven't seen in other films in this vein but i think it just works because like you said like there's such a raw nuanced performance from our lead here and i think she gets a really compelling performance out of her cousin and fellow screenwriter in a way that you know plays to their strengths and uh you know, it's not I don't think I'm quite as high as you are on it, but I, I do think this is quite a little uh, charmer of an indie and I can definitely get behind the praise behind it. Yeah, I, th- I think it's definitely a, a little a little gem, you know, that I hope more people I, do, I hope it's not a hidden gem. I hope it's one that gets some some elevation because it's worth checking out. I think a lot of people will get something out of this. And I think, you know, you to what you're saying there, I think there's a difference right between indie aesthetic and indie passion project. You know, there's the type of indie film that really is like the person behind this desperately wanted to make this. And then the other film is more like, yeah, they want to make this like we're not taking away from that. But it's more of like it's trying to have an aesthetic of being an indie film for reasons that are a little less inauthentic or a little less authentic, I think is fair to say. I'm not going to call anything out here. But yeah, there's films like that in general. This one definitely feels like something that Jesse Barr put her entire self into, which is something I really appreciate. And there's just like little miracles in this film. Some of my favorite things about it and the miracles I'm talking about, how things worked out with the casting. But in terms of just what this film is, I think where the reason it really hit me was how it just like invites you into this young woman's intimate spaces between her car and her bedroom. They're so just well-realized spaces and they're so intimate and it doesn't rely on a lot of dialogue to, you know, put you into her headspace because she says things like she definitely says the themes of the movie here and there which is again i'm comparing it a lot to boogie because that kind of happens in that movie and it's an example of like when it just doesn't quite work maybe it's because of the performance but also because there's just something about the direction that just isn't subtle enough or that it's more here's what i'll say in boogie when he's sort of saying how he's feeling it really comes off you hear the screenwriter But when you hear what Sophie Jones is saying, you hear what she wants other people to hear about her. And there is such there is a world of difference between what people say to each other and how they're actually feeling or what they're really thinking. And that is what this movie is. Those are the building blocks of this movie. And I think that that's why it's it's definitely a cut above a lot of other indie films that to me can just sort of feel a little not boring, but kind of just we're going to give you like an intimate portrayal of a character and you're going to kind of be with this character for an hour and a half and then move on and be like, Oh, that was interesting. Like you're just kind of meeting a friend. This is like when you meet somebody who just really has something uh, really deep and meaningful to say, it's not a perfect kind of indie film in that, in all that respect, uh, especially because I think it's, it's Lily white, <laughs> you know, like this film has very, very little diversity, which is kind of weird, yeah. but uh, it's supposed to, I think it takes place in like Portland or something. And it's just, it's just it that kind like of film. Though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it, it's never about any of those things. So it's not like a, it's not necessarily a huge negative, but it's kind of noticeable, uh, you know, if, you, if you've seen a lot of films lately. Or even just like compared to films we're talking about this week. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
But um, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's a type of film where like I don't I- I'm kind of nervous about giving people the wrong idea about this thing, because it's like you said, it's a very small scale thing. It's a very character driven film. So I don't want to like make people assume it's going to be some grander thing. But at the same time, I mean, when people talk about like Malick-esque type qualities in their films, like I think they just mean like kind of like, you know, like a cameras in the fields or like, you know, like, you know, like long vista shots and stuff like that. And like, you know, that's Malick to an extent. But I feel like this movie actually had some like genuine Malick qualities to it, where it's just like the camera is lingering on the characters, like just like as it's sort of like impromptu kind of feel to it, where it's just like focusing on a person, just like the camera's like trying to figure out the character as we figure it out. And to me, that's the quality I really love about Malick. And, and kind of same with like Jane Campion. Like there's some qualities here as well with that film or with her filmography that I think are apparent here. And, you know, if I'm if I'm thinking of those two filmmakers from your first movie, then then you're on the verge of doing some good stuff. So that that comes as definitely a good recommendation from me. Right on, right on. Yeah, I just, you know, it does a lot of things that I personally like. So I'm pretty high on it. Uh, you know, it does the thing where the high school students actually look like high school students. Uh, there's a musical number in here that's really well done. I think that, uh, yeah, this film just really utilizes music in a way that's really entertaining, just like between like the kind of music that Sophie listens to in her bedroom versus the kind of music that she listens to with kind of her on on and off again boyfriend. I also like how the film doesn't lionize the sort of nice guy trope. There, There is this like new trope coming about that is we've talked about it a little bit like with Noah Centineo through to all the boys where we have like these hyper supportive nice guys and some movies kind of strike a good balance where they like present that but they comment on it sometimes those characters turn out to be way more toxic than the audience might expect in a film something like promising young woman and things like that this is not promising young woman (laughs) sure sure Um, but even something like we're going to talk about moxie in a second you know we sometimes have these like these guys who are more aspirational than they are authentic which i'm not saying there's anything wrong with these aspirational characters i think it is really important for teen movies to have that because i think men in general just they do not have a lot of great positive role models in films and i do think that like we're getting into a better place with that i do like though how this film presents a very realistic version of that nice guy trope where it's not that he's nice he's just kind but he's also flawed he also makes a lot of mistakes but it's it never feels like it's manufactured around the plot having to go to a certain place it's just because that's probably how a guy like that would act in real life and you know that that lends itself to the complexities of boys and girls. And, you know, Sophie herself, I think a lot of people will, will probably be annoyed with her character throughout this film and be like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? And kind of judge her a lot. But I like that this film lets her go that far and lets her be somebody who doesn't always make choices that align with what the audience wants. I think there is a lot of value to that personally because it just lends itself to a stronger narrative overall. So I really like this film. I think that it's going to be a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. So I'm a very, very low A minus. I was mostly a B plus, but there is a guitar sequence played by Skylar Verity where he serenades Sophie Jones at one point in the film. And that's where it goes to A minus for me pretty easily. Uh, But what about you, Will? Yeah, I mean, I'm not as high as you are, but I'm definitely agreeing with what you're saying. And I think the all the strengths that you mentioned are pretty much in line with mine. I just think it's a, you know, it's it's a very minor film. It's a minor key type thing, low key kind of film. But I, I think what works really stands out. And, uh, you know, it, it's definitely the type of debut I like where it's it's pretty modest in its scale, but it focuses on the things that counts. And I, I think that's where it succeeds. So I'll give it like a low but admirable B. Like, I think 
it, it has a lot of stuff that I like. I, I think it hits a little too it hit, hits a few too many indie cliches where I'm just like, yeah, you know, I've, we've seen this a lot. I, I kind of wish you, you're doing something a little bit different, kind of broaden your reach out. But like you said, that might also take away from what is obviously a very personal and earnest film. So definitely a lot to like here and easily my favorite of the films we're talking about this week. All right. That's Sophie Jones it is available via video on demand and it's about like an hour 23 minutes long something like that hour 25 maybe all right abby have we have we sold you on sophie jones did it work yeah i think you have i was uh already kind of curious about it and it just sounds like you've had some really lovely things to say about it and i um i i trust uh, nicole hall of center's taste uh, as a as a producer on this one so yeah i'm i'm excited to check it out for myself you've been very very patient so uh, we gotta let's move into our last film here and this is one that all three of us have seen, Moxie. This is a new comedy slash teen drama sort of thing directed by Amy Poehler. It's kind of like Mean Girls for Gen Z, I guess, but not as good. Um, I don't want to get ahead of myself, though. This is based on a novel of the same name by Jennifer Mathieu that came out a few years ago. It stars Hadley Robinson, Lauren Tsai, Patrick Schwarzenegger, Nico Haraga, Sidney Park, Josephine Langford, Clark Gregg, and Ike Baron Holtz. Also, we have Amy Poehler, who plays the mother of our main character. This came out via Netflix on Wednesday, and it's been getting mixed reviews so far. And to get us into the setup for this film, Abby, take it away. What What is Moxie all about? Sure. Moxie tells the story of uh, a young high schooler named Vivian, played by Hadley Robinson. Uh, she is entering her sophomore year at high school. It's uh, some kind of unspecified location in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and her mom, uh, Lisa, played by Amy Poehler, uh, was kind of... Uh, I don't know. She was she was she was a bit of a hellraiser in high school um, and uh, kind of uh, riot girl style 90s feminist, as we learn from kind of her her history. Yeah, she was like if if uh, Brie Larson from Captain Marvel hadn't gone superpowers, she'd probably be the mom in this. Right. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, uh, she she listens to uh, listens to a lot of Bikini Kill, but uh, importantly, only Rebel Girl, because that's the only song that Bikini Kill has ever produced. We'll talk about that later. Um, but uh, Vivian is, is a fairly uh, subdued individual. She just kind of tries to get through high school without uh, anybody really bugging her. She and her her best friend, Claudia, uh, played by Lauren Tsai, um, are just kind of they're sort of along for the ride. Uh, that all changes when a new student named Lucy, uh, played by Alicia Pascual Pena, shows up at their school and is immediately harassed by um, Patrick Schwarzenegger's character, Mitchell, uh, who's kind of the, the, the school jock. He's the, the captain of the, the football team. Yeah, he's like the, the Brock Turner, but the high school years. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so after seeing how Lucy is being treated by Mitchell, Vivian decides that she is she's she's not going to take it anymore. She's tired of of just kind of dealing with stuff. And especially the fact that their principal, Principal Shelley, played by Marcia Gay Harden, is really not doing much to uh, to kind of curb Mitchell's behavior and seems to be enabling it in some ways. Um, so she starts a zine inspired by her mom's teen years called Moxie that uh she kind of copies and distributes out anonymously. Nobody knows that it's her doing it and nobody would expect that it would be her doing it because she's usually so quiet. Um, kind of taking the uh, the culture of their school to task and uh, asking 
women in the school as well as allies to kind of stand up and note that that behavior is not acceptable. Um, and she kind of finds a ally slash crush slash boyfriend in uh, Nico Haraga's character, Seth, who is supportive of that and kind of accidentally finds out that it's her doing it fairly early on. I am not, I don't know, I, I'm kind of torn on this because there are some elements of of Moxie that are really cute. Um, I should also note that um, the uh, the author of the uh, of the book, Jennifer Mathieu, uh, has some Kansas City connections. She used to work at the Kansas City Star. So it's cool to see some local representation on uh, on screen, even if the movie is kind of has has some issues. I know Amy Poehler has kind of come under uh, fire a little bit uh, in recent years for having a kind of white centric feminist stance. Um, I will say that uh, that Moxie does like it. It does take Vivian's character to task in a couple of ways that I appreciate. There's some discussion of um, her ability to kind of stand out and do kind of counter uh, authoritative action as a form of white privilege, which I, I think it's important that that gets called out, that not everybody has the same the same experiences and the same freedoms. There are some elements, particularly late in the film, that feel real bad. Um, there's a one one particular um, turn that the plot takes is very serious and kind of changes the vibe of the rest of the movie in a way that I feel like would have been better addressed up front. Uh, and it would have been more helpful to put a certain character's experiences more front and center than Vivian's because as it stands, the way that this reveal takes place in the third act of the movie Vivian has to react to something that has happened to another character who has been on the sidelines up until this point and in taking a stand makes that character's trauma about her in a way that doesn't feel great. So there are there are some issues that I had with it that are kind of I don't know that yeah take take some pretty serious missteps that probably need to be uh, looked at a little more closely. Um, but there are some other things that I appreciate that it tries to do. Um, but for the love of God, Hollywood, please look at the rest of Bikini Kill's discography. I swear <laughs> there are more songs. There are yeah. good songs that you can play that are not necessarily Rebel Girl. And people who listen to Bikini Kill will know what they are, just like I do. And they will appreciate that you took a stance and tried something different. Yeah, yeah. This this movie, this thing really wants the 90s to come back. And usually I'm all for that. I mean, I would say the dream of the 90s is live on Netflix, you know, between this and like everybody sucks. And I think like 90s nostalgia is such a tricky thing. And I just don't think we've really nailed it yet, which is really weird because I feel like 80s nostalgia was already like in full swing years and years and years before, you know, the, the time for it had come. But I don't know. With this movie, I very much was like, oh, OK, like a fan zine that's like straight out of the late nineties. It just, it, it, to me, it felt like a comic book movie without comic books or superheroes or anything like that. It just really felt like a bubblegum kind of take on white feminism. Like you're saying, particularly with like, there's a lot of people of color in this, but it does revolve around this like white girl who is inspired by people of color and uses their opinions and their stances on things to create the agency of this movie there there's a lot of weirdness around that um so i i found myself rolling my eyes a lot at moxie but never hating it i actually you know i think that it's very very watchable and i think that there's some fun moments in it and i like a lot of these characters in the film 
particularly Lauren Tsai. I, I appreciated some of the more complexities with her character, particularly with what you were talking about with how she and uh, her her friendship with Vivian kind of rang true to me. There, there's some stuff in here about, you know, a first relationship, about when you make new friends and how they don't click as well with your old friends. And there's clearly a lot of good intentions here. I just think that this thing clearly, it's like if your mom made a movie for the teens, this is kind of how it would turn out. We love our mom, but you know, obviously there's going to be some things in here that feel a little off. Uh, but what, what do you think, Will? Do you think your mom did a good job with this film? Uh, no, I, I mean, I don't want to put my mom on the spot here. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I feel bad. Your mom um, is Amy Poehler, right? Uh, no, she is not. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm pretty in line with where Abby is on this one. To me, this felt very much like an algorithm type film in that it felt like the type of thing that Netflix has on their site because they're like, hey, we may not have the rights to Mean Girls or Easy A or Booksmart or Bring It On forever. So like, let's have a movie that we can recommend if like these movies go off the site. And for me, that that added to the artifice of it, that that added to the inauthenticity of it. As Abby was mentioning, like, it, I think the intentions of it are fine. Like, I don't I don't think it's trying to be cynical or anything like that. If anything, it's just trying to be very earnest and sweet. But the execution of it just strives to move away from anything being that authentic, that it just doesn't quite work when it does actually bring, like Abby was saying, some like very real stuff to the end in a way that that doesn't really connect with the film. And uh, I, I can very much tell, as I mentioned, that it's inspired by Booksmart. But I think Booksmart is able to be at this heightened world in a way that's uh, effective because it, it has no preconceptions about that. Like all the characters are obviously sort of like this like heightened Gen Z type personalities. But the movie is willing to like kind of acknowledge that like we're on this like other playing field, like we can have some real moments, but we're also like on this level throughout. And I just don't think Amy Poehler really gets that vibe throughout. It just felt like a very uh misstepping type thing in that it just doesn't quite ever really find its groove and like you, you were saying john like I, I know it's going for that kind of casual vibe and I, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily but at the same time i just i, I didn't really find myself connecting with it too much yeah i mean those movies that you're referencing mean girls easy a Booksmart, they're consistently funny and that really helps you know that really helps dress up the more preachy aspects of those films than it does anything else because ultimately mean girls is obviously has good intentions too it's trying to tell a story about bullying and easy a is trying to tell a story about slut shaming and book smart is trying to tell a story about you know not looking down on your classmates and thinking you're always better than them and those are really great ideas and this one has a a, a shell of an idea of like you know don't let you know boys will be boys is pretty messed up when you really think about it and this whole school is like cartoonishly it like slavish to like upholding like a very very toxic culture they even kind of mentioned in the movie there's like there's something really wrong with this school and it it feels so cartoonish and it feels so out of reach that i think that it undercuts the point or like the reforms that have to happen it it feels like uh it, it feels like a very special episode of a school i think like there's just like rampant sexism throughout and uh the principal the needs that- to be fired Yes. Yeah. And yeah, it's a female principal who like I would have been interested to see a female principal character who is trying her best to try and mitigate a situation like this at this school while also knowing that her hands are tied to a certain extent because of her position and who she has to work with and also because her she's she's generationally different and so there are some things that she just won't know that to me would be really interesting and some of these other movies like i would say booksmart has characters that are like that like it's possible to do 
Yeah, pr- promising young woman. Again. Yes, promising young woman does that too. It's there's it's it feels very flat and simplified in a way that I don't know maybe works in a YA standpoint, but I mean I don't think that there's a Gen Z teenager out there today who would watch this and think yeah that tracks. Yeah, it's a shame too because the, the the cast here is really talented. Kind of mentioned Nico Haraga before is kind of like the nice guy in this he is a little bit like okay he can't do anything wrong (laughs) you know they have to have like that one character that one uh, male character who is an ally who isn't going to like mess up which again it's more aspirational than it is believable but you know that's something that i appreciate and i think he pulls it off with his performance however josie toda not enough josie toda in this movie uh, she has proven through Saved by the Bell that like she is a truly like rising talent. And in this movie, she's such a background character and she has like way too much charisma for that. And you can kind of tell her character without even trying is screaming to be a bigger part of this movie. But unfortunately, I think just this just was being made before her star power started to really take off. She she was like a Disney Channel um person. And then she is just like kind of starting to get more breakout roles. And they, they kind of... I think hint toward her being transgender, but it doesn't quite go there. So it, I guess if you're received by the bell fan, just be prepared for that awkwardness because it, it definitely st- uh, sticks out. I think they are explicit about her transgender identity to be fair, but otherwise, yeah, I do agree. I might, I might've missed it. Yeah. It's not very clear. She says that, uh, I, there, that the school won't call her by her new name and okay, that yeah, right, could right, be yeah. for a variety of reasons the most likely of which is is that she is transgender but it's never actually said that that's why right so if you're like aware of her and like and all of that stuff it it definitely is like you can you can tell what's going on but it, yeah i just wish it's like we'll get into that a little bit more like you know that that to me seems like something especially in this day and age that is much more of a contentious issue but uh regardless this movie is trying to be a little bit broader it's being trying to be a little bit more all things to all teenagers i guess and ultimately i just think it's a little bit of an awkward mess so i i'm a, i'm a low c plus and it's a C plus just because I think that it it's trying and it, it gives an effort and you can definitely get through it. And I think some people will enjoy it for the most part. And I don't think it's, I think it's ultimately pretty harmless, but I don't think it's very smart, uh, very book smart, I guess it's not, it's, this is not an easy a, uh, but I, d- I definitely don't want to be a mean girl about it. So C plus for me. How did that, how was that? Was that bad? That was, uh, I say, wow. don't bring it on. <laughs> Sorry. I, I just get a little dazed and confused sometimes. Oh, geez, that's no. (laughs) Abby Olchesi, yeah, yeah. What are are your final thoughts on this one? Yeah, I'm, uh, I I want to like this. There are things about this that I I want to like, but there's so much of it that just rings false. And there are so many other movies that touch on some similar themes in ways that I think appeal more to the audience that it's trying to reach and feel more realistic to those scenarios. Um, you know, Booksmart, Booksmart, everybody watch Booksmart. Um, I would probably give it a high B minus, I think is kind of where I'm at. There are things about it that are enjoyable and fun. Um, there's some humor in it that I did like. Uh, I appreciate the uh, portrayal of of women standing up for each other. Um, and there are some aspirational aspects to certain characters that I think it's nice to kind of see, but ultimately it's, it, yeah, it's really not reaching the areas that it need to re- needs to reach. And a large part of that I think is because of the, uh, generational difference and focus behind the camera. All right. 
you know, Will, you're you're the youngest of us, and I think you you actually have like a family member in like the demographic for this movie. Yeah. Um, if you want to, yeah, if you want to say like, did she check this out, and or if not, would you recommend this to her? What, what do you think? Uh, I mean, she watched a little bit of it with me when I was watching it. I I, I think she seemed kind of interested, but I, I don't know what her opinion is, so I can't speak on that. But um, little do you know, she's like at FedEx office right now, printing off copies of <laughs> her own. I mean, I will magazine. say, um. I don't know who that that actor is, but the FedEx guy is probably my favorite character in this whole movie because he's one of the few characters that actually got a pretty consistent laugh out of me. Just his general, just kind of like, yeah, sure, okay. Um, <laughs> what do you want? Um, I don't know. That worked for me. But um, yeah, that's um Ron Perkins. Oh, is it? He's okay. been, he, he, yeah, he was um he was one of the guys in uh, Spider Man, um the two thousand two one. Uh, he's also in Prestige. I'm, I'm trying to remember. He's been on some TV t- things too. Okay, I think I know who you're talking about. It's, yeah, you, it's you've seen him in all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like Abby was saying, this is a movie that's pretty much at odds with itself. It's trying to be intersectional. I think it's trying to have a good spirit, like good rah-rah, you know, attacking spirit. But I just don't think it quite sticks to landing because like we were saying, like so many of the characters, the side characters are one dimensional and outlandish in a way that that doesn't really communicate the the themes of the film too well or a way that that feels authentic. And then we have these actual grounded moments in that are better, I mean, from a directorial standpoint, but they just don't jive with the rest of the film and they just come into the story rather awkwardly. And it shows that I think Polar is getting better as a filmmaker. Like there's an opening scene here that that feels way more stylistic than anything else in the rest of the film, which I'm very curious to know about that. But um, otherwise, yeah, it's another film that just kind of feels like a Twitter thread uh, in film form. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't doesn't really feel more than that ultimately because it just doesn't quite reach that that authenticity that i think is is necessary but i do agree that the the cast here the young actors i think are generally pretty good and i, I also enjoyed ike Barinholt. i thought he was fun for his side part um you know and there's also like a like um newscasting kind of thing that with a guy who's very consistently trying to make pirate puns that that occasionally got a chuckle out of me like there's there's some things with the comedy that i don't think are bad but by and large, I do agree with you, John, that it just doesn't it just an awkward mess. And for that, I have to give it a uh, pretty high C. OK. Yeah. And by the way, Greg Poehler, uh, Amy's Poehler's uh, brother, uh, plays uh, one of the news anchors in this. Not the pirate guy, obviously. <laughs> she doesn't have a brother that young. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I definitely want to see more from Poehler. I think that this is a big improvement over wine country, which I thought was just barely watchable. Like if that like that movie was just a whole lot of nothing. Um, but this movie definitely feels a little bit like it's got something to it and got some energy to it. So that is Moxie. It is available to watch on Netflix. It is 111 minutes long, so just under two hours. And with that, we are done. This is it. And, uh, you know, I don't want it to end, though, because if we finish this episode, that means Abby's gone. So let's review a few more movies. Um, okay, so we're going to talk. Uh, oh, wait. No, sorry. I guess I, we can't really do that. Sorry, Abby. No. <laughs> but. Last last time, Abby, to plug whatever you want. Um, no oh, rules. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, I have a full review of Raya and the Last Dragon up on Crooked Marquee currently. Um, and you can find my uh, up- upcoming South by Southwest coverage at uh, rogerebert.com here in a couple of weeks. So if that's a thing that you want to find out more about, you can 
you can go there. Uh, and I am still writing for the pitch. So you can find me uh, on the pitch website and you can follow me at, at Abby Olchesi on Twitter, A-B-B-Y-O-L-C-E-S-E, where I will be posting links to all of that stuff as it happens. All right, everybody do that for sure. Uh, Will, any, anything you want to plug this week? Um, no, I don't really have anything. I mean, I'll, I'll once again recommend my uh, last episode of Any Ogre Tits Ogre just because I think it's fun and uh, you may get a cameo from John. So I'll just plug that again. I think that's that's worth listening to. But don't forget, you have a you have a review of Boogie. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Um, Yeah, I have a written review as well of Boogie on the Cinemaholic site. So if you want to hear more of my thoughts on that film, besides our bonus episode, you can check that out. All right. Yeah. Be sure to do that. It's on cinemahawks.com. Yeah. For me, I, I wrote a bunch of reviews this week that you can check out. Uh, I've got Riding the Last Dragon on Cultured Vultures. Uh, my SpongeBob review should be out today or tomorrow on that site as well. I've also got Chaos Walking and Coming to America reviews on a Words Watch. And then I have a review of Boogie on The Young Folks. Kind of, I wrote a lot of reviews this week, a lot more than expected. And then my Sophie Jones review is supposed to be coming out. I won't say it's a new outlet, so I don't know 100% it's going to work. So I'm not going to tease it yet, but I might keep an eye out uh, on my Twitter if uh, that's going to be coming out. It could possibly be my first print review, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Could could totally fall apart. We'll see. Um, but all right, that's it for our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. From the Internet California, I'm John DeGroni. From the Internet Pennsylvania, I'm Lash. From the Internet Kansas City, I'm Abby Olchesi. See you next time.